September 1812, Belgian doctor J.R.L. de Kerkhove could hear the cries of thousands of injured soldiers, victims of Napoleon's War of Conquest. France had just won a great battle against Imperial Russia. The fighting had killed nearly 28,000 French and 45,000 Russian soldiers. The dead still lay on the battlefield, forgotten by their units. De Kerkhov watched from the road as Russian peasants stripped the soldiers of their filthy, lice-infested clothes. Swarms of hungry rats and carrion birds feasted on the soldiers' carcasses. De Kerkhov tried to put the gruesome images out of his mind. He had patience to see. Up ahead lay an Orthodox monastery the French had converted into a field hospital. As de Kerkhov approached, a soldier carried his wounded friend inside. The doctor could tell, even from a distance, that the man wouldn't make it. He entered the hospital and covered his mouth. The air was thick with dust and candle smoke. The stench of blood, filth, and decay overpowered him. Suddenly, a shout came from the back. A French officer batted at the air and raved about something de Kerkhove couldn't understand. The man was feverish and delirious. Purplish spots covered his chest. When de Kerkhove tried to guide the patient back to his room, he noted that the spots were hot to the touch. De Kerkhove did what he could to make the man comfortable. He'd seen this illness before and knew how deadly it could be. And it was sadly too late to save the soldier's life. Looking around, de Kerko felt a chill run down his spine. There were nearly a hundred people in this hospital, and almost all of them had the same rash. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on typhus, a lethal pathogen that has tormented mankind since the 15th century. This week, we'll trace the history of the disease as it cut down armies and brought emperors to their knees. We'll follow fearless doctors like Charles Nicole, who risked his life to ascertain how typhus spread. Next week, we'll join scientists as they search for a cure. We'll follow two Polish physicians as they rush to synthesize a vaccine under the looming threat of Nazi Germany. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Typhus holds a unique place in the pantheon of human diseases. It repeatedly bent humanity to its will. The disease first emerged in 1489 and devastated Western Europe. People feared typhus for its high mortality rate and how easily it spread in prisons and on ships. But most devastatingly, warfare was its constant companion. In fact, the first definitive record of typhus came from a war zone. Before the unification of Spain, the region consisted of several competing kingdoms. In 1482, the devoutly Catholic monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella, rulers of Castile and Aragon, went to war with the Muslim kingdom, the Emirate of Granada. In 1491, the Catholics laid siege to the city of Granada, the last Muslim stronghold in Spain. However, a mysterious plague spread among the Spanish troops. Within a year, the disease killed 17,000 Spanish soldiers. They called it spotted fever for the red and purple welts it left on the skin. Unfortunately, first-hand accounts of the outbreak no longer exist. Instead, the first detailed description of the spotted fever comes from Italian physician Girolamo Fracastoro in 1546. Fracastoro observed how first an otherwise healthy man would suddenly feel dizzy or faint. Several hours later, he'd develop a splitting headache along with a fever and chills. Then came excruciating muscle aches that could knock him to the ground. After five days, hundreds of tiny red or purple spots called petechiae appeared. They covered the whole body except for the face, the palms of the hands, and the soles of the feet. To the layperson, it might have looked like chickenpox, although Fracastoro noted that the spots didn't itch. The fever worsened and a crippling fatigue set in. Sunlight was extremely painful. Within the first week, the disease began to affect the mind. Some of Fracastoro's patients suffered hallucinations. Although Fracastoro didn't realize it, the symptoms were caused by inflammation in the brain. The infection made them hear voices or see people who weren't really there. Each patient manifested different neurological symptoms. Some laughed uncontrollably or spouted gibberish. Others became blind or deaf, and many lost the ability to move. 
After two weeks, the disease destroyed his patient's vascular system, the network of blood vessels in the body. Deprived of oxygen, their fingers and toes turned black. Only recovery or death brought the pain to an end. Fracastoro believed that an imbalance of fluids in the body, called humors, caused spotted fever. He learned this concept from the ancient Greeks. They claimed the body had four humors, blood, phlegm, meaning water, gall, which came from the kidneys and spleen, and choler, which came from the liver. According to humorism, almost every medical malady was due to an imbalance in the humors. To treat a patient, a doctor merely had to ascertain which humor was high or low and adjust accordingly. In 1546, Fracastoro prescribed powders and herbs to restore this balance, but his treatments didn't help. In fact, the disease spread. Fracastoro was bothered by how quickly spotted fever swept through the population. At the time, most doctors believed diseases were carried by foul odors called miasmas, emanating from sick people and unburied corpses that literally poisoned the air. The logic of miasma came from doctors' observations that epidemics were widespread during warm months where the smell of garbage and waste was more powerful. But other theories of contagion had been around for centuries. In 1025, the famed Muslim physician and philosopher Avicenna believed a surprisingly modern idea of disease. He speculated that tiny particles, too small to see with the naked eye, carried illness. Avicenna's works were widely translated over the next several hundred years. Fracastoro may have read them and had an epiphany. Spotted fever seemed to jump from one person to the next. If this was true, then the miasma theory of poisoned air had to be wrong. Fracastoro imagined disease as an invisible seed, a kind of poisoned life force. These seeds multiplied inside the victim, making him or her contagious. By this logic, keeping sick people isolated was the best way to prevent infection. But isolation wasn't practical for every European. Typhus was common in jails and on ships where squalid conditions became fertile breeding grounds for the fever. Nothing stoked the fire of pestilence like war, and another one was already brewing. In 1525, two young kings were locked in a power struggle for control over Western Europe, and spotted fever was about to decide the winner. Charles V, the King of Spain, had been elected Holy Roman Emperor and given vast amounts of land. His power was a direct threat to the French King, Francis I, who feared an invasion. In 1526, Francis and a contingent of French soldiers marched into Italy to gain allegiance of the Italian Papal States. Pope Clement formed an alliance with France. In retaliation, Charles' Spanish army tore a path through northern Italy and sacked Rome. They looted the Vatican and burned it to the ground. But their victory was short-lived. A plague outbreak quickly tore through the Spanish troops. The withered Spanish army retreated to the city of Naples and barricaded themselves inside. In the summer of 1528, 28,000 French soldiers marched on their position. Tired, 
hungry, and outnumbered three to one, it wouldn't be long before the French overpowered the Spanish. But then, like divine intervention, spotted fever struck the French forces and wiped out more than half of Francis's men in less than a month. The rest were demoralized and weakened. After the dust settled, only four out of the original 28,000 French soldiers were left alive. Charles was the triumphant winner, and Pope Clement bowed to Spain's power. Efforts to contain subsequent outbreaks failed. Typhus burned through crowded jails and filthy ships. Those ships carried it to the New World, where it caused further devastation. A Spanish observer estimated that a 1576 epidemic in modern-day Mexico killed more than two million indigenous Americans. Medieval medicine did nothing to tame this ferocious demon. But in the late 18th century, a British surgeon reshaped the world's understanding of how disease spread. And he uncovered the key to fighting typhus. Coming up, we follow the doctors and scientists who risked their lives to find the source of the outbreaks. Hi, it's Richard. Ready to hear about my new favorite Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, Host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. In the 16th century, typhus swept through jails and battlefields. Sporadic outbreaks crippled armies and altered the political landscape of Western Europe. The disease spread across the Americas and into Asia, but physicians still didn't know what caused it or how to stop it. That finally changed with Dr. James Lind. Lind sailed with the British Royal Navy between 1739 and 1748. As a ship surgeon, he experienced the filthy conditions that sailors endured firsthand. Like everyone else aboard, he slept in dark, cramped quarters amongst rats, lice, and fleas. Disease ran rampant, the most lethal of which was ship fever, another name for spotted fever. Few men were willing to live in such conditions for months at a time. To recruit crewmen, so-called press gangs would roam the streets and kidnap or impress men for service. Most of the involuntary recruits were from the lowest rungs of society. The Royal Navy put them into cramped waiting areas, still dressed in the same rags they were caught in. Some of these people were already sick. 
as soon as they were brought aboard, an outbreak would start. The Navy made efforts to improve ventilation aboard ships and disperse disease-causing bad odors. Lind believed in miasmas, but he didn't think bad air alone could explain why ship fever spread from recruits to sailors. Lind spent years meticulously collecting data on naval hygiene, and he found that ships with the cleanest sailors had the lowest number of infections. In 1763, he published a paper asserting that infected clothing caused ship fever. Lind asked the Navy to provide new clothes for recruits, as well as soap and water. He also advised that the new sailors be quarantined for two weeks to prevent anyone who was already sick from bringing it aboard. In 1781, the Admiralty adopted his recommendations. Within several decades, they eradicated spotted fever from British ships. But the secret to the Royal Navy's success took a long time to reach other parts of the world. By the start of the 19th century, hygiene was still a foreign concept in the French military, and they were unable to prevent typhus's devastation during the Napoleonic Wars. In June 1812, the largest army the world had ever seen was on the march. Napoleon Bonaparte, the self-declared emperor of France, had conquered or subdued virtually all of Western Europe. He aimed his new campaign at Russia. Tsar Alexander I had angered Napoleon by trading with the British, and the French emperor wanted to teach him a lesson. On the eve of June 23, 1812, more than 600,000 of Napoleon's soldiers camped by the Niemen River in modern-day Lithuania. At dawn, they'd cross into Russian territory and begin the assault. The Grand Army, as the French called it, was like a city on wheels. It had hospitals, jails, and taverns that could be picked up and moved at a day's notice. People spoke languages from a dozen conquered territories. But unbeknownst to Napoleon and his advisors, the army had an uninvited guest. Hundreds of thousands of troopers were crammed into barracks with no sanitation to speak of. Their city on wheels had become an enormous petri dish. Soldiers began to fall ill at an alarming rate. Perfectly healthy men were suddenly struck down by dysentery, hepatitis, and a host of other diseases typical of war. However, a new sickness began to outpace all the others, spotted fever. The doctors had called it typhus after the Greek word for smoke or haze. The name referenced the stupor experienced by patients as they went into shock. Typhus-induced fevers started in the hypothalamus, a part of the brain responsible for temperature regulation. Because the hypothalamus also affects appetite, typhus patients lost a dangerous amount of weight. One woman said that watching over her sick lover was like seeing him waste away before her eyes. Despite the growing number of sick soldiers, Napoleon ordered everyone to march on. He mistrusted doctors and even called medicine the science of assassins. He defunded his surgical corps and staffed it with people who were unfit to fight on the front lines. Sadly, his stubbornness meant his sick soldiers paid the price. By the time the Grand Army reached Moscow in September 1812, as many as 200,000 had died of disease. 
And typhus, the spotted fever, was the number one killer. A 2006 study extracted genetic material from 35 soldiers who died during the advance. Almost 10% tested positive for typhus. However, the real number of affected soldiers may have been much higher. Even men who survived typhus were weakened by it. Survivors suffered from chronic fatigue, not to mention brain, kidney, and vascular damage. They'd lost a dangerous amount of weight, which left them vulnerable to starvation and infection during the brutal march home. By the end of November 1812, Napoleon's forces had withered from more than half a million troops to less than 40,000. It was a staggering loss in only five months. Napoleon never raised such a large army again. He was utterly defeated, and he hadn't even recognized his true enemy until it was too late. It's unlikely Napoleon could have prevented the epidemic. His doctors couldn't stop typhus because they didn't know how it spread. And their cures didn't work because they couldn't find the root cause. But in the Netherlands, researchers tried to find those answers. In 1674, a Dutch scientist named Antony van Leeuwenhoek used the world's first microscope to observe a world teeming with life. Leeuwenhoek found that the smallest drop of pond water contained thousands of tiny creatures, what he called animalcules. At first, his publisher was reluctant to print anything about them. The idea of invisible animals swimming around a drop of water sounded ridiculous. But Leeuwenhoek couldn't be deterred. He invited scholars from all over Europe to look through his microscope and see for themselves. To their surprise, these animalcules were abundant in rainwater, seawater, and even saliva. Leeuwenhoek drew and categorized as many as he could. One of these life forms he described was less than three thousandths of a millimeter long. Leeuwenhoek was the first person in history to see bacteria. But he thought they were mere curiosities. It didn't occur to him that they could be the source of some of mankind's deadliest plagues. Two hundred years passed, and no one connected bacteria with disease. Meanwhile, typhus continued to ravage Europe, Asia, and the Americas. One of the problems with early medicine was that it had no way of distinguishing similar illnesses from each other. By sheer coincidence, typhus shares many of its symptoms with another unrelated disease called typhoid fever. Fatigue, muscle aches, rash, and high fever are common in both. Because of this, physicians thought they were the same for centuries. However, in 1835, an American physician named William Gerhard published a paper noting the differences between the two. Typhoid fever usually caused diarrhea or constipation, which were uncommon in typhus. In addition, the red spots that appeared on typhoid patients disappeared when they were touched. However, typhus spots remained. A medical textbook from 1855 explained that this was because typhus marks were caused by ruptured blood vessels under the skin. Perhaps most telling, patients who had typhoid fever suffered from lesions in their intestines. These were only revealed by an autopsy, 
but they were a clear sign that typhoid affected different organs than typhus. Other scientists quickly followed in Gerhard's footsteps with more insights into typhoid fever. In 1873, an English doctor wrote that unlike typhus, typhoid fever spread through contaminated water. And the most significant breakthrough was yet to come. In 1877, German bacteriologist Robert Koch observed rod-shaped bacteria in the blood of sheep that had died from anthrax, which caused skin lesions and pneumonia. Koch found a way to extract these bacteria from blood without killing them. Usually, bacteria couldn't survive outside a host body, but Koch injected them into a solution that contained nutrients they could feed on. He called the fluid a culture. The bacteria thrived and multiplied. When he injected them back into sheep, the animals became sick. This was proof that the rod-shaped microbes were responsible for anthrax. And more generally, Koch demonstrated that Leeuwenhoek's hoax creatures caused illnesses. Koch's discovery of bacterial cultures meant that anyone could grow bacteria in a lab. Scientists began isolating the germs behind other maladies. Only a few years later, the bacteria responsible for typhoid was isolated. Dozens of others followed. But one disease resisted identification. By the dawn of the 20th century, there was still no consensus on what caused typhus. Some suspected it wasn't a bacteria at all, but a virus. Scientists discovered the first virus in 1892, and by 1898, it was clear that these organisms could also cause disease in people. Viruses are many times smaller than bacteria and are unable to survive on their own. Once a virus enters a host cell, it hijacks the reproductive proteins to produce more viruses. The new viruses burst out of the cell and the cycle starts over again. So researchers looked for viruses and bacteria in typhus patients' blood. They found neither. In fact, the disease seemed like some kind of supernatural monster, infecting people without any physical sign of its presence. Even with the advent of germ therapy, typhus was a deadly mystery. And on the dawn of World War I, it was poised to devastate Europe. Coming up, Charles Nicole makes a breakthrough in the battle against typhus. And now, back to the story. At the turn of the 20th century, typhus was still as big of a threat as it had been in the Middle Ages. Scientists made strides in preventing it with hygiene, but they still didn't know what caused typhus or how it spread. In 1903, French scientist Dr. Charles Nicole was determined to uncover typhus's mysteries. In January, Nicole took a position as director of the Pasteur Institute in Tunis, Tunisia. As soon as he arrived, he created a laboratory where he could study typhus, which was endemic in the North African country. In June, Nicole scheduled a trip to a prison outside Tunis where an outbreak was raging. The night before he left, he caught a cold. Later, he mused, if it had not been for this accident, my first contact with typhus would have been my last. My colleague and his servant went to the prison. They spent the night there, 
contracted typhus and both died. The incident shook Nicole deeply. It was his first brush with death, but it demonstrated how important it was to find a cure for typhus. Nicole was especially interested in how the disease traveled from person to person. During an outbreak in 1906, he paid close attention to the way typhus spread within the hospital. It began when an infected patient entered feverish and exhausted. They'd have to wait near the front door for an attendant to call them. Eventually, a staff member led them to a washroom and took their clothes to be cleaned. The patient would then move on to one of the wards. Nicole noticed that the attendants frequently became infected during this process. The disease also struck doctors and families who visited the waiting room. But once the patients entered the ward, they were no longer infectious. They could shiver and cough all they liked, but their neighbors would remain typhus-free. Nicole replayed the sequence of events in his mind over and over again. He tried to understand what separated the patients in the ward from the ones in the waiting room. And finally, he realized it was the clothes. Tunisia was home to a wide assortment of vermin. Rats, ticks, fleas, and lice. Especially in the poor quarters where sanitation was lacking, lice were ubiquitous. The theory made sense. Lice lived and reproduced in clothing, jumping off several times a day to feed on blood. If washing a patient and their clothes removed the lice, then maybe that was enough to prevent the spread of typhus. Nicole set out to test his theory. When the next outbreak hit in 1909, he injected a chimpanzee with the blood of a typhus patient. Within a day, the animal became feverish. A spotted rash spread across its chest. This was proof that the chimp had contracted typhus. Nicole then injected blood from the chimpanzee into a macaque monkey. Macaques were cheaper and easier to come by, allowing him to afford some more test subjects. Once the second monkey became sick, he allowed lice to feed on it. Then he took those same lice and placed them on a healthy macaque. The third monkey fell gravely ill. Lice were the culprit. A year later, in 1910, Howard Ricketts and Russell Wilder confirmed Nicole's discovery. The American scientists were investigating a typhus outbreak in Mexico City. Shortly after publishing their results, Ricketts contracted typhus and died. Nicole heard about Ricketts' death and mourned the loss of yet another colleague. But he knew that casualties in the war on typhus were unavoidable. The search for a cure would have to continue, and the clock was already ticking on the next epidemic. The research continued, and Nicole discovered what he called inapparent infection. He found that rats could contract typhus but remain healthy. However, their blood could make guinea pigs sick. Modern epidemiologists know that a person can carry an infectious disease without showing symptoms. Nicole had unwittingly stumbled onto what we now call asymptomatic carriers. Dr. Nicole's work made headlines and even affected real change. The Tunisian government began a campaign to boost sanitation in its crowded slums. But it couldn't stop typhus entirely. Lice could survive in the smallest of crevices 
and it only took one to start an infestation. A female louse was capable of laying up to 10 eggs every day. To stop the spread of disease, every single egg had to be found and destroyed. However, the early 20th century had no insecticides or antibiotics. Vaccines existed, but they were disease-specific. Scientists used Koch's method to culture bacteria and then killed them using heat or chemicals. They would then inject these dead microbes into the body, tricking it into creating antibodies that would fight the real disease. But Nicole couldn't isolate the bacteria or virus responsible for typhus. There was nothing to kill and then inject as a vaccine. So he tried a different approach. He transfused blood from people who'd survived typhus into healthy patients. Then he exposed them to typhus-infected lice. Nicole hoped the donor blood's antibodies would protect his subjects. And at first it worked. However, within a few months, some of the patients contracted typhus again. A natural typhus immunity could last for years, but Nicole's patients were reinfected as soon as the donor blood was out of their systems. So he returned to his notes and previous research. There, he found something he'd overlooked before, an observation made by Howard Ricketts, who died studying typhus in 1910. Ricketts had spotted bacteria inside the blood of an infected patient. With the discovery, Nicole finally had a microorganism that caused typhus, but he couldn't make a vaccine without a culture. He was struggling with this obstacle when World War I erupted across Europe. The battles between Serbia and Austria-Hungary escalated into a world war that lasted four years and took more than 20 million lives. And with war came its age-old companion. Typhus was about to rear its terrifying head once more. The outbreak began in Serbia among Austrian prisoners of war and then jumped to the Serbian army. The disease flared up in December 1914 and in March 1915, reaching massive proportions. Between January and March, an estimated half a million Serbian civilians became infected, about 17% of the population. In some locations, it killed up to 70% of those affected. When journalist John Reed visited Serbia in the spring of 1915, he called it the country of death and the country of typhus. During the first five months of the war, typhus alone killed more than 150,000 Serbians, as many as had died in combat. It was still unclear what caused the disease and how exactly lice transmitted it. A Brazilian scientist named Enrique Rocha Lima thought he knew the answer. Lima had read about Howard Ricketts' observations of bacteria inside blood. He also knew that whatever caused the illness also killed the lice that carried it after 12 days. He reckoned that if typhus was a bacteria, he should be able to see it growing inside of infected lice. In his German lab, Lima let lice feed on guinea pigs infected with typhus. Then he dissected the lice and scrutinized every body part for Ricketts bacteria. It was dangerous work. Lima and his partner, the Czech zoologist Stanislas Provazek, both contracted the disease. 
Lima survived, but Provazic did not. But his sacrifice wasn't in vain. In 1916, Lima announced that he'd conclusively found the bacteria responsible for typhus. He named it Rickettsia provisecii, in honor of his colleagues Howard Ricketts and Stanislaus Provazic, who died searching for a cure. Lima also revealed that typhus was not spread through louse bites, as most doctors believed at that time. He couldn't find rickettsia in the lice's mouth parts, but it was everywhere in their intestines and feces. Lima concluded that when a person scratched at a louse bite, he or she inadvertently allowed typhus-laden lice feces to enter the bloodstream. But one question remained. How could doctors use that information to stop typhus's spread? The best solution anyone had was to provide soldiers with clean clothes and hot showers. But unfortunately, wartime conditions made that impossible. In 1916, soldiers spent most of their time crowded together in muddy, blood-soaked trenches. And the military was only part of the picture. The war displaced millions of people, especially in Serbia. Many were already sick with typhus. By the end of 1916, after killing more than 100,000 civilians, Serbia's epidemic began to burn itself out. Most people who'd contracted the disease were either dead or recovered with temporary immunity. But typhus wasn't finished, not by a long shot. Another war was brewing just over the horizon. In 1917, hunger and discontent sparked a revolution that toppled the Russian Tsar from power. Within months, Communist Bolshevik revolutionaries overthrew the provisional government. A bloody civil war broke out between the communists and those loyal to the Russian monarchy. By the end of 1920, the communists were in power. Many combatants in the Russian Civil War were soldiers who'd fought World War I in Serbia and Eastern Europe. As they came home, they spread typhus across the country. The epidemic began anew. In Russia, typhus found an ideal breeding ground. In 1919, a British observer wrote, There was no fuel to thaw water or heat it for a bath or to wash clothes in. Water pipes had frozen and burst. Few people possessed spare shirts or underclothes. During the winters, hungry people crowded into train stations to flee violence and stay warm. The trains then carried lice-infested travelers to new towns, and death followed. The bacteria occasionally changed the outcome of battles. In 1918, a typhus outbreak infected 50,000 soldiers of the Communist Army. They subsequently lost control of the Tarek region near Georgia and Azerbaijan. The opposing anti-communist forces quickly occupied it. No one kept an accurate tally of infections, but a Soviet demographer calculated that the communist army had 600,000 cases in two years, of which 100,000 died. If we include civilians, that number is exponentially higher. One estimate placed the death count at over 3 million, more than 2% of the entire Russian population at the time. Lenin reportedly said, Either socialism will defeat the Laos, or the Laos will conquer socialism. 
1923, the plague began to recede, just as it had so many times in the past. It retreated into its usual sanctuaries of slums and prisons. But the nightmare wasn't over yet. Even as the survivors cleared the rubble from the streets of war-torn Europe, the seeds of a new conflict were already being sown. World War II was on its way. Scientists needed to find a way to kill the rickettsia bacteria and the lice that carried it before the next war began. If they failed, typhus would inevitably re-emerge to claim more victims, and the death toll could be in the millions. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, we will follow the scientists who searched for a cure in the most dangerous place on Earth, a Nazi concentration camp. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm back to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I think you're really going to get a kick out of it. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.